Hey, my name is Parker Manuel, pastor of Pinewood Church in Boulder, Colorado, where our mission is to meet people where they are and point them to Jesus. Hope you enjoy today's podcast. So we believe that God's Word is perfect. It's the Holy Bible, the number one best-selling book in all of history. Uh, it's perfect in every way. We believe there's a lot of fancy words for it, inerrancy, infallible. Uh, we believe that that is all true, but we believe that this is actually God's words to us, that this is not just stories, although it is a historical, I mean, there's a lot of history here. This is history. We have more historic, historical documentation in the Holy Bible than we do in any other ancient text. But we believe that this is not just stories and history. We believe that this is actually God's Word that is living and that is active. And as we open it up, as we talk about it, and as we read it, it changes our life. The Bible says that it, Scripture actually pierces to the bone and the marrow of who you are. So the deepest parts that you try to hide from everybody else, good luck hiding it from the Holy Spirit when we dive into God's Word, because He's going there. Whether you like it or not, He's digging deep today. So let's dive in. First, I want to share a little bit about my wife and I. My wife and I moved to Boulder about three and a half years ago, and we moved here 100% to start a church. We didn't move here with a team. We didn't move here uh, with money. We moved here with our family and a vision, and God has provided for us every step of the way. He brought an incredible team around what he was already doing here, the best team. He knew exactly what we needed and when we needed it. So if you're new to the dream team, and maybe you just started serving. Guess what? Perfect time. God knew exactly when you needed to start serving, where you needed to start serving, and we're so grateful that you're here. So we launched a couple years ago, and whenever we first came into Boulder, Colorado, we didn't really know anything about this city. But when we first landed here, we felt God's favor. We felt his peace over our family. And we began to really just meet people do things in the city, go on all the hikes that everybody said to go on, and eat at all the places everybody said to eat at. And we fell madly in love with Boulder, Colorado. We love it. If you ever get irritated with Boulder and you're thinking, I think, I don't know if Boulder's the place for me, then I want to encourage you to go on a city appreciation tour. Yeah. Go on a vacation anywhere other than Boulder, and you will be glad you live in Boulder. You're going to want to come back. Does any, anybody in the house ever go on a vacation and after about three days, you're just ready to be back in Boulder? That's me. I mean, that's me pretty much everywhere except for maybe Cancun or maybe a few other places. I could probably linger there for a couple weeks. But other than that, Boulder is my home base. I love it. And I not only love the city, I love the mountains. I love going on the hikes. I love adventure. Anybody else? That's why we moved here, right? We love the altitude and the adventure. A lot of hiking, a lot of biking, rock climbing. I was big into rock climbing for a long time. But more than, the, more than just kind of the city at large, more than the mountains, more than the hobbies, I love the people in Boulder. I don't know what it is, but I just resonate with the way they think. Now, Boulder has a reputation for having, you know, an interesting group of people. So I don't know what that says about me, but uh, I guess we're all in this together, okay? Like, we are Boulder, you know? We're a family. But I love the people. I love their, their drive, their passion. People of Boulder are so kind. You're like, do y'all agree with this? I mean, that's why we're here, right, family? That's why we pay $8,000 for a 1,600 square foot home a month. 
<laughs> because we love it that much. This is true. But Boulder has an exterior and Boulder has an interior. Boulder has somewhat of a, a facade and they also have a little bit of a reality. And so, yes, while all of those things are true, and yes, Boulder ranks number one in every category, Backpacker Magazine, Outsider Magazine, Forbes, you name it, we hit number one, and I love it. It even ranks as the happiest place to live, but just in my personal interactions with hundreds and hundreds of people in this city, everything from CEOs to multimillionaires to professional athletes to all these people that you would think, man, they got it all. Reality is, on the interior, there's something still missing. I can't tell you how many times, even recently, I was playing golf with somebody, and they said, I have everything that I could have ever dreamed of, and I'm empty, and I'm alone, I'm isolated, not happy, can't maintain healthy relationships. I said, well, I get that, because honestly, apart from Jesus, that would 100% be me. And there's this idea that all of these amazing things that Boulder has to offer is going to offer some level of sufficiency for their soul. Surely, I will hit the pinnacle of something here, and it's going to satisfy every desire that I so desperately crave. But it's simply not true. All of these things are temporary. And that's why when people come to Boulder, and maybe this is many of you here, and you pursue your dream, and you pursue your vision, and you give it everything you have, and when it doesn't happen, you're crushed, and you're devastated because everything that I've ever wanted is not happening. But I want to let you know that in Jesus Christ, he is all-sufficient. He is everything that you ever need, that you could lose your job, and that would be devastating, but you could still have joy. You can still have peace. You can still have confidence that the world could crash around, around you. Relationships could be struggling. But, but when you have Jesus, you have sufficiency. You have hope. You have purpose. God loves you, and he has a plan and a beautiful purpose for your life. I don't want you to know that today. If you don't hear anything else, God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Let's read Acts 17, verse 16. This, very, this place where Paul is referring to in Athens is very similar to Boulder. Very beautiful, a lot of things on the exterior, but as we're going to read here, there's some things going on in the interior that I hope speak to you today. Let's read this together, verse 16. Paul was waiting for them in Athens. He was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God as well in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be preaching of foreign deities because he was telling the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you are presenting, because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent time on nothing else but telling and hearing something new. Let's pray. Father, Father God, thank you for this, this story that we have that we can study and that we can examine. 
of Paul's encounter uh, with these people. And God, I just pray. I pray that we would open our hearts today to the truth that you have for us, but also that we would open our hearts to just a renewing of our mind and a recognition of the weight of the gospel and how special that is for us. Thank you for bringing these people here today, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's talk uh, briefly about Athens and some of the culture things that are going on there. Athens was a culturally pagan society. Uh, it was a city on a hill. They, had, they served many different gods. They had very fancy temples and buildings. And it was really a, a brilliant place that people showed off their artwork. They showed off their, you know, their education and their philosophy. There was a lot of debates that happened at this place, Areopagus, where they would debate. I mean, you might even be familiar with Athens because of Plato and Pericles and Aristotle, and these people would come, and they would debate. They'd have conversations here. And so it was really high educated. It was really affluent, uh, but also a very pagan city. And as we look at Paul coming into the city, you see the first thing that he says is that he was deeply distressed. And that word distressed, I mean, that would almost be like like I would be deeply distressed if like I ate something wrong and it didn't set well. I'm kind of like, I'm deeply distressed, you know. I don't think that's what he was speaking to in this term. It's not necessarily an unsettling as it is a deep anguish. That Greek word refers to the word of utter like turmoil in his spirit. Paul looked around and he had utter turmoil. He had deep distress when he saw that the city was full of idols. He saw And this is the question that I have for you today. Yes, we love Boulder. We are Boulderites, and we're proud of it. But as we walk around this city that we love, do we look at it almost with eyes that see on the surface, or do we look at our city with maybe eyes like Jesus? Maybe eyes that the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention to, maybe the greater need in our community, maybe the greater need with the people that we work with, the greater need with our neighbors, the people that we ski with, snowboard with? Are our eyes open? And if so, do we see and feel like turmoil in our spirit because there are idols in our city? There are idols in our life. Or do we just kind of get caught up in it, kind of with everybody else? And the very things that maybe at the beginning we would have condemned as an idol now may be our idol. And so now not only do we not have eyes to see it and feel despair and distress over it, but now we're worshiping the same thing that we would have otherwise been tormented over in the beginning. Boulder has a way of doing that. I've talked to so many people that have come into this wonderful city and they said, I was so strong and I was going to church, and I was doing whatever the thing is. I was, I was, relationship was good, and then I came to Boulder, and yeah, I don't know what happened. I was like, well, I, I mean, I understand how that could happen. I mean, Boulder is, is a very isolating city. You don't think that it would be, but 
I mean, if you've been here before and you didn't know anybody and you just happened to move here, my guess is that it took you a little while to find deep, really intimate, meaningful relationships. And so it's not only it's, it's isolating, but then it's also a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure to be healthy. I think that many of the idols that we have in our city is, is health. Everybody wants to be healthy, so we strive to be healthy. We spend resources on health, and we talk about health with people. And we want to be wealthy. We want to elevate our careers. We want to do all these, all these things that are good if our worship is aligned with God. All these things aren't bad. All these things are fantastic. I'm a huge advocate for health. My word for the year last year was health. I pursued it with everything that I had last year. This year, it's wealth. So, I mean, if you guys have any, you know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you guys have any, you know, tips or, no, it's definitely not wealth. This is not the year for, but, um, but everybody is worshiping something. Everybody. You may even say that I'm not very spiritual, you know, I'm not very religious. At the end of the day, you are worshiping something. It could be, you could be a worshiper of science. You could be a worshiper of culture, a worshiper of your body, a worshiper of your education. You could be a worshiper of the very thing that you are putting your energy, energy towards, setting your values on, and putting your resources towards. That's how you can determine what you worship. One of the things that I see, too, in this uh, passage is this says that they spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. I also feel like not only do we become obsessed with the things that we can see, touch, like, like the health and wealth and some of the other things, like the mountains, we can be obsessed with that in worship, but also think we can become obsessed with new. New. Oh, there's a, there's a new idea. There's a new, new theology. Oh, there's a new God. It's a new way to pursue my spiritual life. I'm going to go check that out for a while. So these people were obsessed with talking and hearing about new things, which Paul actually leveraged this to his advantage. He said, oh, I got something new for you. You see, I'm not striving in my spiritual walk. I'm not striving for something new. I'm honestly trying to understand and trying to wrap my mind around the old and ancient texts that are in the Bible I'm trying to wrap my mind around the grace of God in my life. I don't need something new in my life to feel whole or to keep me energized or excited about my faith. I have all that I need in Jesus Christ. I want to spend my energy and my time trying to understand, God, how could you possibly love me? So Paul was familiar with dealing with people that both liked to strive for the new and those that clung to the old. And I want to give you a dem demonstration of this. So I am not a piano player by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not a singer, but I'm about to try to do both. And if you know this song, sing it along, it's actually pretty simple to learn. It is called, whoa, hey. It's like you're turning it into like a worship sesh. This is, this is definitely not going to be that, so don't. Nobody stand up or like get real. Okay. This song is called Old Time Religion. If you know it, sing along. 
Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Let me try it again. Hang on. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. Hey, that's all right. Give me that. This is a song that I used to sing in church camp. Give me that old time religion. What does that even mean? All right. We would sing it with all of our hearts. We'd clap. We'd march around the camp. It was what were we singing? All right, it gets, it gets even uh, weirder. <laughs> it was good for mom and daddy. It was good for mom and daddy. It was good for mom and daddy. It's good enough for me. It was good for mommy and daddy. All right, so how, how many of you are clinging to that old-time religion that your mom and dad... All right, let's, let's, this is my favorite verse right here. <clears throat> it will take us all to heaven. It will take us all to heaven. It will take us all to heaven. It's good enough for me. All right, so that was a song talking about this kind of old-time religion. And what that translated to with the people that I grew up with anyway was um, don't wear pants, don't go to movies, and don't drink too much. All right? Uh, there's, and KJV. Okay, that was like, we're singing like, hey, this is like, this is what we're living for. This is the old time. Paul was very familiar with this kind of reasoning. He had just finished reasoning with with the Jews, how they're hanging on to their traditions, hanging on to Give me that. No, keep that. No, Paul's saying, no, I got, there's something better for you. As the scripture says, he was preaching about the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. And so whenever I think of what I'm trying to lean into, what I'm trying to discover, where I want to spend my energy is not in the pursuit of the old, not in the, just being about talking about the new, but clinging to... All right, the old rugged cross. You know this one? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame.
See, Paul realized that if we're going to lean into something, if we're going to cling to something, if we're going to strive for something with our life, and if I'm going to spend my energy traveling city to city to city, I'm going to focus on, I'm going to cling to the truth of Jesus Christ, having been buried, having been put on an old rugged cross, and having been resurrected for you and for me. I want to tell you, I want to talk to you in verse 22 about our mission statement here at Pinewood Church. I believe that this next portion that we're going to study really encompasses what our mission here at Pinewood is all about. It's a very simple and a very specific mission. It's to meet people where they are and to point people to Jesus. Meet people where they are, point them to Jesus. And Paul does a really exceptional job at this. Let's see what he says in verse 22. He says that Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you, what you worship in ignorance, notice he says what, not who, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. For no man, for one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of whom they live. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. That's good news. For in him we live and move and have our being. Notice what Paul does here is when he's trying to meet somebody where they are, what is one of the first things that he does? He compliments them which I think is very important for us, is I think if we're wanting to be evangelists, if we're wanting to be people that really share with our friends the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think that a good approach for us is to be complimentary of people. Complimentary? Let's try again. To be complimentary of people. And to affirm them. It doesn't have to be always their outfit. Could be their shoes. Could be their style. Did you cut your hair? No. Well, it looks good. You know, you look great. It's a common. This is what he did. He walks in and he says, I noticed that you are extremely religious in every... That, that was the greatest compliment for these people. Oh, yeah. You notice just how smart we are, huh? <laughs> Thanks for noticing. So he tries to make a connection by first giving some affirmation to some aspect, which I don't believe that he was being sarcastic here. If anything, I think he was affirming... like. Hey, you're leaning in. Let's just bring some clarity to the areas you're already leaning into. Which is why, even whenever I refer to Boulder as, you know, they would like to say they're not religious, but they're spiritual. And, and I'm not being sarcastic there. I actually think that's a good thing. Let's start there. So you do believe that there's like, you know, a God trying to reach out, trying to talk. Okay, let's bring some clarity there. Let's talk about who that God is. So first, he says that, you know, you're extremely religious, he compliments them. 
But then he even digs a little deeper into the context, and he, you can tell that he, he really is aware of the culture around him. He really integrated himself. He, Paul was already extremely brilliant, historically a high-level rabbi, rabbi deep into his studies. It's thought that Paul spoke many, many, many languages. And so he understood their context, and he really dove in. This is a missiological term called incarnational missions. Hang with me. Okay. This is incarnational missions is you don't come in and just preach to people. I could bring in one of the best preachers from the deep, deep south, and you guys may be like, I mean, he was a good communicator. I didn't understand a word he said, but uh, I like him. But I think it's important to be incarnation to understand. That's why when my wife and I moved here, we moved into the heart of the city. We wanted to plant a church there. We wanted to meet our neighbors. We wanted to be friends with our neighbors. We ate at all the places everyone ate at. And why? Because we wanted to be an incarnational. We love the city. We want to reach the actual people that we were trying to do. This is what Paul does when he's trying to meet people where they are. He's trying to meet them. You're very religious. I see that you have these objects, and I see that there's one in particular called the unknown God. Now, I'm going to stop right there for a couple reasons. So first we see he complimented them. Then we see that he understood their context. But third, we see a great deal of courage from Paul. So Paul already has experienced a significant amount of persecution already at this point. And as we studied before, Jesus did say, I'm going to let him know just how much he's going to suffer in my name. So I mean, he kind of already knows what he has signed up for here. But he's already done a lot of, he's been a part of a lot of persecution already. Paul knows that he's going to the, a Rapagus area he's going to be confronted here, and he has a decision to make. I could shrink back, and I could be like, okay, never mind. Well, can we talk one-on-one? Maybe I don't have to go on, like, the stage, you know? I don't want to, not looking to get stoned today. But he doesn't do that. Paul has courage. And even despite the criticism, as we're going to see, they do criticize him. They talk about how he's this babbling fool that actually the word, the, the babbling word actually refers to him as being like a bird that walks around picking up scraps off the ground. I mean, he, this guy's talking about this crazy stuff. So he knew he was going to get criticized, but Paul instead had courage. So when we're talking about meeting people where they are, I want to give you some very practical handles here. First off, let's not be offensive before we get to the gospel if we don't have to. So, like, when you go to tip your waitress, tip them really good before you invite them to church. Like, let's not be offensive, please, before we get a chance to, like, make a connection there. Let's compliment, let's give them a good tip, 20% plus, any of my waiters in the house, you know, 30, 40 if you can, it's a tough season. But let's be confident, even when you make interactions with people, let's try not to, like, our first interaction to be that of offense, but that of connection and that of complimenting them. Be positive. Have a positive attitude. But as, as we look at even meeting people where they are, as Paul did here, I think it's important for us to identify objects of worship that people may be struggling with in advance as well and do everything that we can to meet them where they are with that struggle as well. Because here's what I was struggling with even this morning. As I was talking, to think, as I, was, I preached at the 10 a.m., I was thinking about this idea of like when you... Meet people where they are, especially in a context that you have integrated yourself in. It's easy for you to project that they're dealing with something that 
maybe you've already found total freedom on, and in reality, you're probably both in the same struggle together. You just have Jesus and the hope to get you through it and the foundation to get you through it. And so as you're meeting people where they are, I want to give you one encouragement. Connect with people on the same struggle that they're struggling with, with you, and be open and honest and transparent to say, you know, I've dealt with that as well. Of all people to have dealt with idol, idol worship of tradition, Paul was one of them. Hey, look, I've been there. I've obsessed about this too. But I was wrong. I had an encounter with Jesus, and it changed my life. So Paul is not speaking... Uh, at people, but with people, like as a part of that experience as well. What does he go on to say? He says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. What you worship in ignorance. After this moment, so he's calling out their ignorance that they maybe just don't fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, but but after this moment, everything changes, because now they're no longer going to be ignorant. I... You may think that in 2021, surely everybody in America knows about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Surely, right? Everyone's seen the passion of the Christ. Guys, that is 100% not true. Cannot tell you how many people that I've sat down with and said, tell me what you, tell me what you believe about God. Well, to be honest, I don't really know a lot about it. I mean, yeah, I believe that there's a God, Sure. Well, come on, like, what about Jesus? Jesus, I mean, yeah, I'm sure he's a cool guy. I mean, it seems like he's done a lot of really cool things. I can't really think of anything they said that I would be upset about. You don't know what he did for you? I can't tell you how many people I've sat down with and said, I have never heard what you just told me right now after I've shared the gospel with them. Paul enters in with the intention and the purpose to proclaim to their ignorance. You can be nice, you can be loving, you can be generous, and you can be serving all day long. But until you proclaim Jesus and his resurrection, how are they no longer going to be ignorant towards what Jesus did for them on the cross? We have to be people. If we're going to be people that are living on mission, we have to be people that are boldly proclaiming Jesus and his resurrection so that our community can no longer live in ignorance. One of my mentors would always say, we want to give every person a Jesus option. That may sound oversimplified, but I don't think that it is. If somebody doesn't know what Jesus has done for them, and we, as believers, the body of Christ, get an opportunity to sit down and say, let me tell you what Jesus did for you. This This is the greatest news I've ever seen, heard. I know you're spiritual. I know you're pursuing spiritual things. Let me tell you, this is going to be the best spiritual thing you've ever heard in your life. What does he say? He said, the God who made the world and everything in it. So Paul starts with God when he begins to present the gospel here. So I want to give you just very, very, very practical five ways. If you're here and you've never been given tools to be able to share your faith before, I want to give you five very simple tools to walk you through what is the gospel, how do you share the gospel with others. This is the bonus one. This isn't a part of the five, but I think the number one thing that you should do is you should share your story. If anybody ever, ever, if you have a friend and they're wondering, you know, why are you a part of this thing at Pinewood? You seem to really give a lot of your energy towards this thing. And it's like, well, it's actually not 
for Pinewood. I'm giving my energy for the kingdom of God because he's called me to something much bigger than myself. Right. What does that, what does that even mean? <clears throat> you have a water bag? Can I get a water? Well, that's a fancy glass. Thank you. Awesome. So he starts with God. So I think what we should start with God, number one. John 30, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God. God created the heavens and the earth. We start with God, the creator, and us as the created, and his love for all humanity. Next, we move to sin, which could just be humanity at large, sin, that we are all sinners, that God has a, has a standard of perfection, and that I would go as far as to say, I think we would all agree that whatever perfection is, let's just say you're in the room today and you're an atheist, then the reality of like good and evil probably is as prominent to you, but you still say both de definitely exist. And so there, if there is good, then there's, whether it's from a God, from humanity, there is still a standard. And that whatever that like level of like perfect standard, even from a humanitarian standpoint is, I would say that very few of us would say that we're there. Now, if you're an agnostic in the room and you say, maybe there is a higher power, then I would say whatever that higher power's standard of perfection is, I would say that we could probably all agree we're probably not at that level of perfection. Now, I'm here to tell you that there is a God in heaven who has a standard, and it's outlined here in Scripture for us. And by everyone that I've ever met, me being the most, I would say that I fall radically short of that standard. Scripture says, for all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. If we were as perfect as God's, we would be God. But we're not. We don't set the standard. The Creator sets the standard. We submit to His standard over our life. Also, scripture also says, 6.23, for the wages of our sin is death. So if, we can, if you're here and you can agree that, okay, I'll give it to you. There's maybe a God. I'll give it to you. I've probably sinned. Then I'm here to tell you that you're about to hear some of the greatest news you've ever heard in your entire life. That we don't have to work to earn forgiveness from God for our sin. We don't have to work for it that God did the work on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ. Go back to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, God so loved his own creation, that he gave his one and his only Son, and that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. God sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world, born of a baby to live a perfect and a sinless life, to be the atoning sacrifice, to stand in the gap. We saw for the wages of sin is death. Well, my goodness, if the wages of sin is death, well, then I guess I got to work hard to not be guilty anymore. But the reality, that's not what the scripture teaches. Scripture says that Jesus instead came down and he stood in your place. Though we're guilty, yes. He stood in your place and he hung on a cross for your sins so that you don't have to die. Ah, 
the good news, you don't have to die. He died for you so that you can live and have life. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is found in Romans 5.8. It says, but God. Anytime there's a but God, it's about to be a better story than it already was. <laughs> I was doing my thing, but God. I didn't think I was going to make it, but God. I was sick, but God. I got a diagnosis, but God. But God demonstrates, he shows, he reveals his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning that Jesus, when he was hanging on a cross, knew the sins that you would partake in every day. He knew what a screw up I would be. He knew all of the things that would happen. And instead, instead of saying, you know what, they're not worth it. He said, no, I'm going to love them so much. I'm still going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to raise from the dead so that through my death, burial, and resurrection, they might have life. Now, if he would have stayed dead, then we would have no forgiveness of sins. It was in his resurrection, defeating death, defeating the enemy, defeating sin altogether. It's through his resurrection we have life. That's why in the scripture we see, what is Paul going around teaching and preaching? Because he was telling the good news, gosh, the best news about Jesus and the resurrection. Look, Jesus did actually come. He actually was the Messiah. But he didn't stay dead. When he died for your sins, he rose from the grave. This is the good news that Paul was proclaiming. And then finally, uh, repentance and faith. What do I have to do? Okay, I get it. God exists. Yes, I've sinned. <laughs> Jesus came. Now what? This is, this is extra good news. You can receive the gift of God's love, unconditional love on your life by just receiving it. Surely it can't be that easy. Every other world religion, you have to work. You have to earn. The scales are tipped minute by minute, day after day, one way or the other. But in Jesus, notice I didn't say in like evangelicalism or whatever the case. Don't try to boil this down as much to a religion, but a person. Focus on the person. Let's talk about Jesus for a second. Let's talk about a relationship with Jesus. Because I would say that, you know, if you have a problem with Christianity, I get it. There's a lot of things that a lot of super Christians do that I'm not a big fan of either. Okay, like let's, let's put aside all the Christian people that maybe you've had a horrible experience with or maybe that... Baptist church where you're saying, give me that old-time religion. <laughs> Let's put that aside for just a second. Let's talk about Jesus. Jesus loves you. He's a real person. He's right now risen from the grave, seated at the right hand of the Father. He's pursuing you. God is drawing you in. He wants to have a personal relationship with you, and all you have to do is receive. It's a gift. Scripture says, Ephesians 3.9, for by grace you are saved. By grace, grace is a, a, a Christian term that means unconditional love. By God's unconditional love on your life, you are saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that nobody can boast. In this, in this instance, everybody's trying to work. Everybody's trying to strive. Everybody's trying to earn the right education, the knowledge, or to pursue something. God is saying, no, you don't have to actually work to earn anything. I want to give it to you in grace. All you have to do is receive it. When somebody wants to give you a gift, what do you do? Man, thank you so much for this jacket. How could, 
let me, let me do your job for you for like five days, man. Like, let me, I got you. I got your bag. It's like, that's weird, dude. Just take the jacket. It's a gift. In the same way, Jesus is offering you a gift of salvation tonight. And you can, you can receive that gift through repentance and faith. And then finally, number uh, five, God gives you life. The enemy wishes to steal, kill, and destroy your life. I want to go ahead and tell you right now, if you're here and you're just saying, well, I, I kind of don't know that I want to put my faith in Jesus. I kind of want to pursue just, just what I want and my desires. I want to help you. I want to help. You're going to strive your whole life trying to find a purpose. You're going to strive your whole life trying to fill that, that hole in your soul that only God can fill. And God is reaching out to you saying, no, 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 just receive my grace. Find freedom today from the bondage you're trying to get out of, from the addiction you're trying to break, from the broken relationship that you can't seem to mend. No, 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 you can find all that in me. I'm all sufficient, God. I'm grace. You can find forgiveness of your sins. You can find life. The enemy wishes to steal, kill, and destroy your life. But God wants to give you an abundant life eternal life in him and you can receive that today make him lord of your life we see that this was the ultimate mission of paul whenever he went into athens the mission wasn't to point him to the church you know i just planted this dope church back in Thessalonica. you guys you guys would dig it man the worship is fire he didn't do that Paul went in and he had one mission. To what? To point them to Jesus. Here at Pinewood Church, our mission is not to meet people where they are and point them to Pinewood. Do we invite people in? Sure. We love to invite people in. I believe that if you're passionate about it, you invite people into it. I mean, if you're passionate about CrossFit, how many of you know? We all know that you CrossFit, okay? (laughs) I mean, but, uh, which I'm a huge fan of. I mean, it's great. You look great. But um, if you're passionate about something, you invite people into it. I believe that's also true if you're passionate about Jesus. If God is like doing something in your life and he's changing your life and you're in the word and I can't believe I just studied this, you're going to tell somebody about it. And so that's why our mission is to meet people where they are and point them to Jesus. The centerpiece of the Bible is not a what, it's a who, and his name is Jesus. The Old Testament points to him, the New Testament points back to him, and all of the Bible points ahead to the day that he's coming back again. You know, he ascended one time, but he said, don't stare up into the clouds. I'm coming back again and be ready. And he's coming back. I believe that he is. And when he comes back, he's not coming back as a baby this time. He's coming back as a judge. He's coming back as king where he'll establish his reign here again. And I just want to invite you right now. Don't, don't tarry. Don't wait. Don't put it off another day to say, tomorrow I'm going to follow Jesus. T- tomorrow I'm going to receive the gift of grace. You may not get tomorrow. I get tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you say, fine, you know what? God, I've been running long enough. I've been fighting hard enough. You're drawing me in. Today is the day. What does the scripture say? What does Paul say right here? And he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him when in reality it was really never that far away. Scripture teaches that nobody comes to the Lord unless God draws him in. I want to tell you right now, he's not very far away. He's drawing you in right now. You are no longer ignorant. 
but you've heard the good news of the gospel. And third verse 30 says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. The time of ignorance is now gone. There's a decision to make. And as, as a preacher and as followers of Jesus, we invite people to repentance. We invite people to receive the gift. We don't give people to. So whenever I'm sharing this with you today, I'm inviting you into something more. I'm inviting you into something greater. But the decision is, is yours. God saves people. God changes lives. I don't. I'm just trying to be faithful and preach the good news of the gospel. But God is the one that I already know right now is doing the work in somebody's heart to say, I need to say yes. I need to receive the grace. I know God's doing the work in somebody's heart right now who maybe has been a skeptic and a cynic for a really long time and God is getting a hold of your life. There's two different types of people that um, Paul is referencing here. I want to read this just because I think it's so fascinating about the people that Paul is, is talking to. And, and I, I, I just want you to think about, just, just dive into this with me for just a second and think about yourself. Think about the people that you know and, and love. He says, prior to this time in the history of Athens, even before Socrates appeared in the city, the two great giants of philosophy were Heraclitus and per Permenides. Permenides, Permenides. They were titans in terms of the quest for the ultimate truth in their day. Yet they came out in radical disagreement as to what constitutes ultimate truth. Because these two giants of philosophy could not agree on what constitutes ultimate truth, the people who came after them abandoned the quest for truth altogether, saying that truth is something beyond man's ability to penetrate. They cast off the quest for truth and search for practical understanding. This is R.C. Sproul sharing this. He says, a seminary student in one of my tech theology classes once approached me after a class in which we had been going over the doctrine of God. And he was bored to tears and he said, I need news I can use. I'm a pragmatist. I tried to get him to understand that nothing was more practical than to understand the character of God. If he cannot use that, then the rest of his knowledge is utterly useless. Such a spirit followed the impetus between Paramedes and Herculitis, and the Greek philosophy degenerated into cynicism and skepticism, which is how it was when Socrates appeared on the scene. The one who rescued Greek philosophy and culture from pure cynicism and nihilism was Plato. He revived the quest for ultimate truth. And he created a profound system of truth that the world had ever seen up until that time. But his success was short-lived because his most famous student, Aristotle, disagreed with him. And he created an alternate view of ultimate reality that clashed with Plato's. After that, the man on the street, this is where I want to lean, lean into this right now. After that, the man on the street said, if Plato and Aristotle could not agree on ultimate truth, then obviously, ultimate truth could not be discovered. And with that, a new period of skepticism was ushered in. We are now living in an age of skepticism, which always follows the impetus between rationalism and empiricism. 
I think that's so fascinating, the reality of how maybe a lot of us view just skepticism with putting your faith and trust in God. How can you really know? I mean, like, if Plato didn't get it, and Aristotle couldn't agree on the ultimate truth, how can you really know? And I want to tell you right now, whether you can rationalize it or fully understand it or wrap your hands around it is irrelevant to the truth that God still loves you, that God still wants you to receive his free gift of grace today. Whether we like it or not, he's still God. He's still on the throne. He's still coming back. And we can spend our time and our energy trying to strive like the philosophers. I'm a big fan of philosophy. I think it's great. I think it's important. But at the end of the day, what was what Paul says? For in him we live and we move and we have our being. He makes it very clear. All of the philosophy that you're trying to understand of life, of movement and of being, look to him. Stop trying to rationalize every little detail. It's all in God. Not with God, for God. It's all in God. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he had set a day when he was going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The philosophers. All right, this is crazy. Prove that what you say is true. He rose from the dead. It was seen by over 400 witnesses. He's alive. That's the proof. He's coming back. I want to invite you today to go ahead and stand up. We're going to end with a song of response. Paul was, Paul was talking to two different people today, and, and two different people in the room. The scriptures say he was talking to the Epicureans and the Stoics, so he's talking to these two different demographics of people in the text. Well, the Epicureans were people that their pursuit was solely of pleasure. Fine living was their means to their end. If Epicureans had a theme for their life, it would be enjoy life. The Stoics, on the other hand, theirs was understanding. Their mission, they're, not, they're striving for understanding, for knowledge, for rationality. And their, their pursuit would have been to pretty much just endure life. How can you really know? And I think that many of us in this room today probably fall into one of those two categories. We either have the mind of the Epicurean to say, in all honesty, I'm not ready to submit to God yet because I just want to keep pursuing what I want. My pleasures, my desires, this is the, year, this is the pursuit of me. And I want to challenge you. I want to say, let's, let's make this the pursuit of God, that in Jesus, you will find your ultimate joy, not in temporary satisfaction. And I also want to challenge you, if you're in the room and you're a stoic today, and you may say, I don't. I will put my faith in God when I know every mystery of God. I want to challenge you today. If you knew every mystery of God, you would be God. You will never know 
What we know, we see in a mirror dimly lit. I mean, it is just foggy. It is the best that we can understand. So for you, I would say, with what faith that you have, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if you believe that, then to put your faith in what you know. But it's only a little faith. That's all you need. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. 10, 13, for all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want to encourage you today, no matter, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, I want to encourage you today, call upon the name of the Lord. Don't tarry one more day. Don't wait one more day. Don't leave today without saying, I want to make Jesus Lord in my life. I believe it'll be the best decision you've ever made. I want us all now to, to bow our head, close our eyes. I'm going to pray a prayer. And I want to invite everybody that's in this space today. If maybe you would say that one of those people are you. You've maybe been on the pursuit. And I, I'm going to ask you this question. And, and I just think there's something powerful when we're just honest. Honest with ourselves. Honest with others. I'm the only one looking around. Everybody has their head, head bound, eyes closed. But if, if you would say, I'm one of those two, um, I'm maybe the Epicurean, I'm maybe the Stoic, I have pursued, my pursuit of my life right now is pretty much to enjoy life and to pursue what I want and my pleasure, that's me, or maybe I don't want to put my faith in anything yet because I'm still reasoning, I, my pursuit is understanding. If you're one of those two, would you please raise your hand, just, just as an acknowledgement that that's kind of where you are right now. I think that's really important to come to that recognition. And if that's where you are right now, uh, and you say, you know what, that's where I have been, but that's not where I want to be. I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus today. Then I'm going to pray a prayer. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. I want to invite you now to confess. I don't believe that the, the prayer itself is what saves you. I believe it's your faith in Jesus Christ that saves you. But I believe that this prayer is a powerful declaration that you can make today to say, you know what, today, I'm all in. Jesus is going to be Lord of my life. And I want to invite you now, everybody in the room, if you agree with this prayer, then I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me out loud. Would you say, Jesus, I need you. For so long, I've tried to do it on my own. And nothing seems to work. I believe that you were raised from the grave and that you're alive today and that you love me. Forgive me of my sins. Thank you for forgiving me. <laughs> by your grace, I'm saved. And by your power, I am set free. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more, or if you'd like to join us on a Sunday, head on over to pinewoodboulder.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. And if you'd like to be notified every time we post new content, then subscribe. And remember, just keep coming back.